want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. It's good to see everyone out this morning. It's good to just be able to sing songs of worship to our God. Uh, I uh, appreciate the, the hymns that have been sung. That first one we sang together, that's one of my favorite hymns. Uh, I love the, the hymns that are, I think, specifically focused on just simple praise, uh, particularly just because we have um, the king that conquers uh, all other kingdoms, and, and I just, uh, I love that hymn so much, and I think it's a good way to start uh, a worship service. Um, as I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 24, um, what I want to do is kind of on the heels of what we talked about last week, we, we last looked at the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus really uses the old law to make a few very pointed arguments, uh, not saying, you know, we're doing away with that, that not, not saying that, you know, forget everything you ever learned from the old law, but rather I'm here to fulfill it. And rather you should have learned some very important lessons about who God is and tried to reflect that. Uh, and, and so on the heels of that, I just want to look at, um, this morning, what I've titled glimpses of Jesus. And that is really just going to be a lesson focused on the shadows and types of Jesus that we see throughout all of the Bible. The reason I wanted to go through this is because, uh, first of all, since I'll just let you know right off the bat, I like to try and at least go through at least one lesson in every single book of the Bible. So very soon we're going to start in Genesis. And I haven't decided whether it's just going to be one lesson or, or a couple there. Um, but we're going to at least have one lesson in each book of the Bible. And all throughout what I want to do as much as we can, is find Jesus. Because as you look at the, at the entirety of, of, of God's word, there's, there's just a great beauty in the harmony of the whole of his counsel. It's one story. It's all telling one story, God's story. Incidentally, it's, uh, it also talks about man's story as it pertains to what God wants from him and what God wants, uh, what kind of relationship he wants from him. But as you look throughout all of history and you look throughout from Genesis to Revelation, what binds it all together is Jesus. He is the centerpiece of that story. He's what the, the whole story hinges upon, uh, Jesus at the cross. And so there's a need to see Jesus throughout the entirety of Scripture. So again, what I want to do um, in, in this lesson is just make the case um, for why I think this is important. Also, maybe just look at some principles that help us as we are in our own study and as we're going to be going throughout the, the whole of God's counsel and, and just see where all can you actually find Jesus. Now, some of this may be a little bit of review uh, just because of, I think, the first lesson, or one of the first lessons I ever preached here was about the, the case for more Old Testament preaching. So some of that will be uh, a little bit repeated, but I, I'll just repeat what uh, Brother Kent said this morning in the Bible class. He referred to Second Peter chapter 1 where Peter says, hey, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. Well, that is, my, that is my excuse for going through some of these things again and again because ultimately I never want to get tired of finding Jesus. In fact, I think this is one of the more entertaining, I think it's one of the more exciting things about our Bible study is when even when you're back in Genesis or even Leviticus especially, 
what can you find? Well, you can look for Jesus. And when you do that, it just makes it all the more uh, exciting, more joy, joyous as we are trying to learn God's word more and more. Now, first of all, just I won't stay too long on this on this first point here because this is somewhat repeated, as I said, from past lessons that we've gone through. But as we've mentioned even last week, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we see in the Old Testament. I think that's one of the reasons that it's important that we continually strive to look for him. He is the very um, object of, of, he's the very focus of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. People will say that the Old Testament, well, that's pointing forward to Jesus, and they're absolutely right. Well, the New Testament is just pointing backwards, or it's pointing at him, or it's just emphasizing him. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely the case. In Matthew chapter 5, and verses 17 and 18, we won't go back there, but remember what Jesus says. I do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And all of those things will be accomplished. Over in Luke chapter 24, finally in, in, in verse 27, Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, what you find here in this chapter is, is that there's a, a few disciples that were very keen on seeing Jesus successful and victorious. But what did they see? A broken man on a cross. And so as they're contemplating these things, thinking about this Jesus of Nazareth who has just died, here comes Jesus of Nazareth, and he begins a conversation with them. They're so distraught, they can't recognize him. Uh, but as he is talking to them, they, they, again, they just will not recognize him. But uh, in verse 24, beginning, it says, Some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And in verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And if you just go down to verse 44, you see one more verse that kind of uh, is just very similar to what we just read in verse 27. But just in reading what we just did, I think I don't think that we can ever lose that importance of trying to seek and find Jesus all throughout our Bible study. If you're not seeing Jesus, when you look through the law, especially in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, just realize that the Jews in the first century also did not see Jesus when they looked through the law. That's why they didn't recognize him. And as you look, especially at the beginning of Romans, if the first three chapters, when Paul is making these arguments that, hey, everyone is guilty. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is held accountable, both Jews and Gentiles alike. I think as he's going through that argument, I think the, one of the cases that he makes is when Jesus came, what you should have saw is here is the law perfectly spelled out. If you actually knew the law, you would have recognized he would have been a familiar face, but he wasn't. And so what does that say about where you were? What does that say about your relationship with God? And so in the same way, if we, as we're looking through even something like the law, do we see Jesus? If we don't, Neither did those first century Jews. And I think that's a problem. So we need to be careful about that. But also, um, especially when you look at Matthew chapter 5, as we already did last Sunday, especially with the corruptions of the Pharisees when they looked at the law. Uh, one of the reasons it's such a travesty when you look at the law in the way that they did, in just a way to get around certain things, or only looking for the loopholes, what you're doing is looking at the character of God, the character of Christ, what we're supposed to reflect, and you are distorting it. 
And so we, we can't look at it in the very same way. Well, next, the New Testament, Jesus, I think reveals the mystery of the Old Testament. So what you have, if you want to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read there in just a moment. But what you have in the Old Testament all throughout is, is, is really, as, as he says, a mystery. Something that is veiled. And when you get to the New Testament, when you get to Jesus, he unveils that. He reveals the mystery. Uh, and he gives revelation for us to reveal that mystery. Um, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 25, Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. I think it's interesting as, as you continue to read, remember that he just says that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is... The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In verse 28, we, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And I just wonder, and, and we'll I just... As we go throughout this lesson, I want to think about this kind of question. Just keep this in our minds. Can we be complete in Christ if we're not constantly looking for him? If we're not trying to constantly find him? As you think about that mystery within the Old Testament, what I think what we tend to kind of run into while we're in our own personal study is things that we just, we just don't understand. Enigmatic language that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense until something more is given. And so sometimes we get to those points, particularly in Leviticus, and we just say, you know what, well, whatever, that's weird, I'm just gonna move on, we'll leave it, we'll leave it for another time, maybe, maybe we'll just never go back to it. What you have when Jesus comes into the scene is, he gives a little bit more meaning to these things. And in fact, when you look at many of, uh, specifically the promises that God gives under the old law, promises that God gives to Abraham, and then to his descendants, all of those promises are left unaccomplished without Jesus. That's, that's the importance. If you don't have Jesus ever coming onto the scene, then all of these things are unfulfilled, and those promises, we have no chance. But here Jesus comes in and he says, okay, I am that chance. I'm the opportunity. I'm the one that fulfills it. In every single circumstance, I am the fulfillment of the law. I am the fulfillment of the offerings and the sacrifices. I am it. Without him, without that mystery being revealed, we're left on kind of a cliffhanger. I think that's what you're left at in Malachi. You get to God saying, I'm going to send my prophet Elijah. And then for 400 years, they're just waiting. Where is he? You can kind of understand how after that, after so many centuries of silence from God, after a whole history of, of direct revelation from God, you can kind of understand when you get to Luke chapter 1 and you see Elijah coming, John, John the Baptist coming, and preparing the way for the Lord, you can kind of understand why some people may be like, maybe not. <laughs> because it's been such a long time. And, they, and they've just been waiting and waiting, and maybe that resolve just kind of died out. Now, ultimately, it's not justified. But at the same time, it does kind of make a little sense when you think about how much time has passed. They were left on a cliffhanger, and they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. But all the more does that make more sense when you see how joyful people get, how excited people get when they meet Jesus, even when he's just an infant, Simeon, in the temple, holding, and I love to think about it this way, can you imagine holding the creator in your arms? This is an amazing thought. 
But here he is understanding who this is, the consolation of Israel, he says, and he holds him up and he blesses God. Now, now I can depart in peace. Why? Because we're not left on that cliffhanger. We've gotten the answer. And so, again, there's such a need to be trying to find Jesus in that. And so once more, I would just ask, can you say that you have a true knowledge of these things if you're not trying to seek him and find him? In Colossians chapter 2, again, beginning in verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, you've got to come to Christ. There was a lesson that I uh, really enjoyed uh, listening to not too long ago. It was titled, Greater Than Solomon. And Brother Stephen Russell, he, he preaches in Athens, Alabama. He's kind of my mentor, but um, he, he was going through this lesson, and he essentially, one of the main points he made was, here, you have Solomon. This doesn't, de- this doesn't de- uh, depreciate the wisdom that Solomon had. All it does is show how much greater Jesus is. Because here he comes saying, now you have someone greater than Solomon, more glorious than Solomon. I, let me tell you, I want to, to, I want to attain and I want to learn the wisdom that we see all throughout the wisdom literature w- w- that Solomon writes for us in Ecclesiastes and the Song of Psalms, all of these things in the Proverbs. I want to take all of that. But let me tell you, even more than that, I want the wisdom, the true knowledge of Jesus. And so that's who I'm going to go to. And so I think that we need to view that as more important than maybe sometimes we initially do. Now, with all of that being said, I just want to talk about some of these words that we sometimes use, just defining the terminology that we use. We talk about shadows and types and copies and and that sort of thing. And I really just want, ultimately... Most of the time, I really just want to give a basic lesson. And so I kind of want to go through what some of these things are and what the scriptures have to say about them so that hopefully as we are going through our own study, uh, it'll make more sense as we go to those things. First of all, when it comes to shadows, uh, the foreshadowings of Christ, understand that shadows are always cast by the substance. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you go outside, the sun's finally coming out. When you go outside and you're about to go to lunch and you look down, you're going to find your shadow. Well, what is that shadow cast by? Well, it is connected to you, the substance, the reality. You're, you're the real thing. The shadow, we don't consider that the, the, real, the real thing. We, we just consider that, well, it's, it's, it's not me, but it is something that comes from me. But it's not the true image. Uh, and in the same way, when you look at the shadows that are given all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, what you find is they are pointing at something. But the, the interesting thing about all of this is uh, when it comes to shadows and types, usually uh, a shadow and a type, you're, you're kind of pointing, you're kind of pointing uh, backwards, right, towards the original. But that's not the case here. In this case, you have a God who so uh, tactfully and, and elegantly all throughout history hints at what he is bringing forward at this son, this savior that he is going to bring that is going to fulfill and really magnify the, the glory that you see in these things that he is, in these hints that he has dropped. Uh, over in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, <clears throat> as, uh, uh, as the Hebrew writer, as the Hebrew writer uh, is talking about 
all throughout the, what is a better covenant, what is a better priesthood, better offering. Um, he talks about some of these things um, that, that, uh, that, that are just better as you get to the new covenant. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. And you might put a bookmark here because we're going to come back to Hebrews a few times. But in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And so even here, it, it, it's pretty clear. As he's talking about the law of Moses, good as it was, it was only a shadow of the good things, of the better things to come. In all of its blessings, in all of the, the um, assurance that it could bring, it was just pointing forward to the fulfillment of that. It was pointing forward to the actual, uh, the, that final atonement that you sing, or that, that you, uh, the final atonement that it will um, ultimately bring forward. Now, when you think about shadows, what's important to realize is the shadow is never Jesus. It is always Jesus that is casting the shadow from from cover to cover. Over in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, some of these things we recognize, like a Sabbath day, that was a holy consecration of Israel, right? That was a day of rest. And all these festivals and, and all of these, these uh, laws that they, that the, uh, all these holy consecrations that they have, a part of the law, they would understand what these things are. And so then you get to verse 17. After he's no, mentioned all of these things, he says, these things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so, again, the main point that I want to make from all of this is whenever you see these foreshadowings, whenever you see um, a, a shadow or type or copy that is glorious in and of itself, all that means is what is coming, Jesus, is that much more glorious. He is never lower on the scale. He's never less glorious than what is being previewed. Rather, this is just a foretaste of what is to come. And so we need to understand that when we talk about Shadows and types that Jesus is the culmination of everything that we are looking uh, that we are looking at and, and studying about. When it comes to types, types always reflect the original. Go over to Romans chapter five. This is an interesting um, passage as it is relating Adam to Jesus. And as you look at how he does relate Adam to Jesus, it's, it's maybe not in the most positive of of lights. But he says. That Adam is a type. Well, in what way? In verse uh, 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law was, uh, was in the world, or until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is, like, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, we just read a few verses about Adam, and again, not in a very positive connotation. But what is it talking about? How Adam brought forth through his sin, death, which corrupted all of God's creation. Not a good moment, right? One of the, one of the worst moments in, in the history of man. And it's here that he says, this is just a type of Christ. Now, here's another thing that I think is important to understand as we look at these foreshadowings of Christ. Just because you have a type, just because you have a shadow, it doesn't mean that they're 100% identical. 
what it means is it's still, it is something that is pointing forward to Christ, but maybe in just kind of a, as a contrast, maybe not as much as of a, of a comparison. Like when you look at uh, someone like David or Moses, Moses the prophet, that is a good pattern. That's a good shadow. But even then, he's not perfect. And so you can't take every single thing about Moses. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a more in just a moment. But, you know, when he, in Numbers chapter 20, disobeys God out of unbelief, it says. Well, you can't attribute that to Jesus. Does that mean that Moses isn't a shadow? Well, no, no. But, but look in verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, particularly as it's still talking about Adam. In verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Down in verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as, the, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So how is he a type? Well, again, by contrast, Adam brought death through his, th this one man brought death through this action. And through this other one man and his action, he's going to bring eternal life. Uh, and so, so the shadows, just because we, we find people that do uh, are really good men and holy men, that doesn't mean that they're going to be an exact replica of that Jesus that we are pointing forward to. I think this especially about the, the kings of Israel. Um, you'll find throughout the, the Old Testament the words, the Lord's anointed several times, particularly when it's referring to the kings of Israel. That word is the same word for Messiah. That's, that's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means, the Greek uh, translation of, of Messiah. It's, it's the Lord's anointed. So we're saying, Jesus, the Lord's anointed, the, capital T-H-E, Lord's anointed. Now, you look at a king like Saul. He was one of the Lord's anointed. And you think, how in the world could he be a shadow? How in the world could he be some kind of type that is just pointing forward to Jesus? Well, uh, if, if you'll go back to 1 Samuel First Samuel chapter 26. First Samuel chapter 26. In this passage, this isn't really the first time that something like this has happened. David has had the chance more than once to take Saul's life. But each time, and I think for the same reason, he, he doesn't want to. Actually, in the first instance, I think I believe it's in chapter 20, uh, first Samuel chapter 24. Um, Saul is, is he's in a cave by himself, and David sneaks up and he cuts the fringe of his garment off, off, off of uh, Saul's robe. And even that bothered him. I think that's so telling about the character that David had. But you come down to chapter 26, and here Saul's asleep. So is the entire camp. They have their chance. They can, take the, they can take Saul out. And Saul has not been a good king. He has not been a good man or a holy man. He hasn't focused on God the way a king of Israel should. But look at how David talks about the Lord's anointed. 1 Samuel chapter 26 in verse uh, uh, 9, answering Abishai, as Abishai says, I'll kill him myself. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? Now again, I, it's kind of hard when you're trying to put up a list of all of the accomplishments of Saul. It's a pretty short list. Now, with all that being said, 
here is a man who very much is a failure uh, when you look at his reign in Israel, and yet he is pointing forward to a king that will never fail. How does that work? Well, maybe it's just very simply by the office that he is in, that he is representing. Here is a man who is an absolute, utter disaster. But trust me, when we get to the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, I promise you, you won't have that. And I think that's kind of what, what God does with Saul and David. He lets the people choose the kind of king that they want, and they get Saul. And then they uh, get the king that God says, I want to give you. And that is the pattern that is then followed after throughout the rest of the kings, throughout the, the history of both the northern kingdom and the, and the southern kingdom. He did not follow after the fa- pattern of his father, father David, or he did follow after that pattern. He was righteous like David, or he wasn't. And David was that king who truly did, who uh, 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 was a man after God's own heart. And so, very simply, it can just be a shadow, in, I think, just by contrast. Now, going beyond that, back to Hebrews chapter 9, just very quickly. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9. In beginning in verse 23, as he has d- just described how the first covenant was, was ratified by blood, the next covenant, the new covenant, had to also be ratified by blood. And he talks about how the people were consecrated and how the tabernacle and all the vessels within the tabernacle were consecrated with that blood. Beginning in verse 23, speaking of those things, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So again, he's talking about mere shadows, reflecting what is the original. And what is the original? What is the reality? It's the things that we can't see or touch ourselves. And isn't that so interesting? You have the tangible. They are the mere shadows, things made with hands, but the things that weren't, the things that, that were not created the, th- the heavenly things, the eternal things, things that we can't see yet, that is really more reality than what we're standing in right now. I think that's a pretty amazing uh, thought as you read throughout, uh, read throughout these passages. In verse 24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Why is that? Because it's been done. I love what the last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It absolutely was in every single degree. And when he rose and he beat death, oh, everything, everything, every prophecy, victorious. 100%. 100% accuracy. Now, with all that being said, you might think, well... If that's the case, if, if it's the, the eternal things that we can't even see, the, these shadows, what, are, what is the purpose of them? Do they even matter? Are they even necessary? Have they been necessary? Well, over in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, very quickly, he says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also having something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy in the shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So again, all throughout Hebrews, it's just Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. 
Why were those shadows and types? Why were those copies so important? Because that's, that was what got us to Jesus. I think this kind of helps us understand what Paul is saying when he talks about the law being a tutor or, or uh, a guide, a guide rail. That is what got us, those elementary teachings, the law being talked about as an elementary teaching, that is what gets us to Jesus. And so, no, these things aren't unnecessary. They were absolutely vital uh, from beginning all the way to the end. Now, I just want to uh, end this last point by looking at what I would say are a few explicit images of Christ. What can we take from these uh, examples, especially that we find in the New Testament, that can help us study as we go throughout the, count, the whole counsel of God's word. Well, if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 10, you don't have to because I'm going to have it on the board. But one of the first things that I think is uh, very interesting that I actually, I heard this, um, again, by Brother Stephen Russell. He, he was preaching a lesson on, that was titled, Moses Struck the Rock. And he talks about the disobedience of Moses. And he talks about the, the severity of the judgment given. And it was very eye-opening for me as I was listening because... He, he came to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it makes all the more sense why uh, that judgment may have been so serious, so severe. Well, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at what it says about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food in verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now first of all, there's a ton of things that are listed in there that we won't have enough time to get to. But just in verse 3 alone, when it says they all ate the same spiritual food. Remember what the Israelites ate in the wilderness? Manna. Manna from heaven. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 6? Just as he is talking to these people who are looking again for, for more bread just for their stomachs, he says, listen, I am that bread of life. I am the bread from heaven, that manna from heaven. And so uh, here again, there, another connection that I think is very beautiful and very interesting, but particularly as it talks about the rock being Christ. I just want to ask the question, how? What is, what, is the, what is the actual impact to knowing that? Well, for one thing, we know that that uh, Jesus' life, Jesus' atonement, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't just for those in the future, but for all time. And so you have Jesus look, watching over and looking over all of the generations from the beginning of time. But, you know, a, a few other interesting things that, that we could note about that. How is the rock Christ? Uh, if you want to turn over to Isaiah chapter 8 very quickly. Isaiah chapter 8. I just want to read one verse here that I think is uh, helpful. <coughs> Excuse me, in looking at this. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 8. Often, the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, will talk about this stone of stumbling. Especially Peter, he talks about that. That this will be the, the, the stone that crushes uh, those uh, that are against it. That cornerstone. But in, in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13... It says, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread, and then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And isn't that the case, that that stone had to be struck, that Jesus had to be struck, 
Jesus had to be put on the cross. He had to be sacrificed so that we could get that water of eternal life, that we could receive that water of eternal life. It was struck to bring forth waters of life. And I think you see a very clear, uh, a, a, a very clear um, connection to Exodus chapter 17 and verse 6 and in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 11. In each case, it is struck and the waters come forward. Now, I think that connection is, is, is pretty exciting enough. But beyond that, you think of how severe the, the punishment was for Moses when the second time in Numbers chapter 20, he strikes the rock. Now, first of all, it's just enough to say he disobeyed God out of unbelief. Granted, 100% agree, that is true. He disobeyed God. And instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it. But isn't it interesting, the, the sequence there, that first, the first time, you strike it, but then this next time, now you're not going to strike it again. Now you speak to it. Could there be more? I don't think that God gives these commandments to Moses just to simply, you know, he's just kind of in a jesting mood and he just says, let's see what he's going to do this time. Let's see how far they're going to go. I don't think that's what, I don't think that's the kind of God we serve. When he gives commandments, it's not just random. I think it's for a purpose and it's for a reason. And could one of those reasons be that God, even all the way back then, was trying to teach something? You don't come... If you want uh, uh, this, water that, that, uh, this water of life, you don't come and you don't keep striking the rock over and over and over again. It's already been done. You don't keep sacrificing Christ over and over again. That sacrifice was once for all completed and accomplished. It's done. But now, what do we do? When, even when we, uh, if you've become a Christian, if you have received those waters of life, and you've gone astray, you've sinned, how do you come to him? You don't strike him again, but you go and you speak to him. First John chapter 2 and verse 1, now that we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous, now we don't come in the same way we used to. We come and we speak to him because we have that advocate in heaven. Well, going beyond that, even though it's struck in rebellion, it still brings forth waters of life. And isn't that what happens at the cross? Out of rebellion, the Jews kill Jesus, kill their Savior, their King that they had been waiting on for a thousand years, for, for a thousand years, or over a thousand years. Even in rebellion, the waters come forward. And I think that the, all of those things, I think those are such beautiful connections that we can make. And what they do is they help us, as we are going through our own study, see what some of these connections are. Now, before we move on to the next example, very quickly, I just want to say... As we are trying to make these connections to the shadows of Christ, I'm not saying that we make loose ones. I want, I want to make tight connections every time. So I'm not just going to take some random thing. I'm not going to take, uh, you know, I'm not going to take just anything from the Old Testament and say, oh, this represents Christ in this way. There's got to be a reason for that. So there needs to be some principle set in place, and hopefully we're setting them in place as we look at these things. But I think that as you look at that connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says explicitly, this, he was the rock that they drank from. I think that those are some tight connections that we can make. Well, going beyond that, in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, we, find, uh, <laughs> we find the Hebrew writer bring up uh, Melchizedek, someone that we only meet once in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 14, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. Just 
very, very short passage. It says that after his return from the defeat of uh, Kador Laamor, this is Abraham uh, defeating people who had taken Lot. And the kings who are with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Now, this is the last time that we hear anything from Melchizedek. This is the last time we uh, see him. We only get a, a, a couple of mentions of his name throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But then you go to Hebrews chapter 7. And we could read uh, more than this, but just in the first few verses here, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, look at what he says about this man. For, uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, again, you could just keep going. There's, there's more that he says about him uh, throughout the next few verses. But just in these verses alone, he brings up a man who, you know, they didn't know, you know, ex an extraordinary amount about. But they did know enough. What did it say in Genesis chapter 14? Well, uh, just, just in the name, there was, a, there was a lesson being taught. So you have King of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? King, uh, king Melchizedek, what does that mean? King of righteousness. And you have King of Salem. And what does that mean? King of peace. And what do we have in Jesus? But the, the King of righteousness and the King of peace. All in one. In the same way. And so just in the name, we are taught something uh, very subtly, but still impactfully. But going beyond that, you find that uh, in the genealogies that is given, rather in the genealogy that is not given for this specific man, there is a point being made by the Hebrew writer. Again, he says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 3, without father, without mother, uh, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And so in something not even given, there's a point being made about who? Melchizedek? No. Jesus. And in this text, in this passage, as you look throughout the next few verses even, with only these verses, he makes a doctrinal case for Jesus' priesthood. And that of a better priesthood. And so, uh, all, again, all of this just to say, there are all kinds of beautiful, elegant hints that God drops all throughout the scriptures. And if we just take the time to, to read through them and actually read through them, so that means even when you get to the genealogies in 1 Chronicles, the first nine chapters, yes, even, even that, much, uh, that, that much names being given, those can be pretty helpful. And in fact, I didn't have time to, you know, put this into, I, I'm sure that you all wanted just another lengthy example, but we could look at the connections of Zerubbabel and Yeshua uh, when, uh, when the uh, people who were in captivity and in the in exile finally returned. There are some pretty interesting connections to be made to Jesus there. But all that just say, it's pervasive. It permeates the scriptures. And so I, I think with all of uh, that, I think that we can very, 
maybe not very easily, but much easier than sometimes we give it credit for, can find Jesus on every single page. And also make sure that we use these principles of, of especially when we find these direct examples given, these very explicit illustrations given, when they point back to Christ, we can use those to find Jesus uh, and make those tight connections. Well, finally, I think that, uh, just as I've already been saying, what this does is it gives us, um, using these explicit images of Christ in the New Testament, it gives us keys to use to unlock that mystery, unlock some of the, the, uh, the enigmas that we find throughout the Old Testament, that, that mystery that Christ comes to reveal. I would just say it is only those who move past the elementary teachings who will find that scarlet thread woven all throughout. Um, I just want to read a quote to you again. There's a few men that I quote frequently, and I think for good reason. Stephen Russell is one of them, and I'm going to quote him again. Brother Tom Holly is another in Starkville, uh, Mississippi. But as he was, as Brother Stephen Russell was preaching that lesson, greater than Solomon. One thing that he um, mentioned was how Jesus, that scarlet thread, you do find woven all throughout. And here's just a few things that you can find just, just in the first portion of the Old Testament. As he begins describing uh, how much Jesus, act, how heavily Jesus actually is found in the scriptures, he says he is the creator in Genesis. That's a clear one. John chapter 1, that the word was with God and the word was God. He is the provider in Exodus, as he is even today, still the one providing Exodus for us. Exodus from the bondage of sin. He is the law, the sacrifices, the priests, the feast days of Leviticus. He is the guide of Numbers, the covenant of Deuteronomy. He is the leader of the Lord's army in Joshua. He is the, the judge of judges. He is the king of the book of Kings. He is the deliverer and the advocate of Ruth. And as we look at the wisdom literature, he is the innocent sufferer of Job. He is the cry of our worship in Psalms, and he is the wisdom of Proverbs. And we could just go on and on. And I'm sure that Brother Russell could. I want to be able to go on and on. And I want to, I want to be able to look at the scriptures. And when we get to one of those weird parts in the Old Testament, think not just think, oh, whatever, just skip that. No, I want, to, I want to really, really appreciate that, just like David does. The man who is blessed, who delights in the law of the Lord. I want to appreciate it in, in the same way and see just how uh, important it actually is. If we start using these keys to unlock the full mystery of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament contains, I think we will find our study just much more enjoyable, finding our Lord everywhere. I think that it will uh, help us understand things that we initially couldn't because Christ actually gives it more meaning. And again, finally, just in the fact that I think it will help us grow in our appreciation in the revelation that God has given us even to this day. Now, here's just one quick example, one last quick example that I think really um, has made me appreciate this, this notion of trying to find Jesus all throughout. As you look at what we already talked about earlier, Numbers chapter 20, what was the judgment, the punishment for Moses? Well, you are not going to be able to enter the promised land. And it does kind of seem like, oh, he is close. He's getting to the end of that journey. But ultimately, he's not because of that disobedience that he shows to God. And so, where Moses failed and is therefore barred from the promised land, Joshua has to take them the rest of the way, where Moses could not. Now, if you don't know this, 
Joshua, uh, if, if you translate that into the Greek, do you know what name that becomes? Jesus. Jesus uh, is the Greek translation of, the, of that Hebrew name, Joshua. And what's interesting about that is, tell me if you, if you see the connection here, where Moses could not get them all the way into the promised land. Joshua, Jesus, takes them, leads them in, and gets them there and accomplishes that. I hope that you do see that connection where Moses, the law, could not get us all the way. Jesus, the gospel, brings us the rest of the way to salvation. And so, where the law couldn't provide, Jesus does, and he answers the question of who can save us. I'm here. The fulfillment, the accomplishment of it all. If you want the salvation that only he can bring, you can make that happen this very morning. If you believe that he is the Christ, if you are willing to repent of the things that he says, gotta go. If you're willing to confess that he is the son of the living God and confess that you'll be with him till the day of your death and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of his life, you can have that salvation today. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward, let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.